As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the show. Going twice weekly for you now. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. This is the Friday show where we react to... Jesse Marsh's press conference, Phil, you've just hot-footed it from Thorpe Arch down to the studio for us to do that. And before we get into that, uh, just to let you know, the Monday show is where we react to the weekend's game. Yeah, and also to say that it might well be that the Friday show comes a little bit later to you than normal. I know people, certainly in the UK, are looking out for it first thing on a Friday morning, but there is a ridiculous run of Sunday matches through September and October. And in fact, from I think the, the Brentford game away down in London, at the start of September, right the way through to the start of uh, November, we don't have a single Saturday match, uh, which means the press conferences usually take place on a Friday. And because we'd like to bring you what's been said in them and discuss what's been said in them, um, we might be coming to you a little bit later than usual. Yep. I'm back from my holidays. Dan Moylan here from the Square Ball with Michael, also from the Square Ball, who did hosting duties while I was away. Very, um, very Enjoyed well it. Well. Enjoyed it an awful lot. I listened to the shows that took place during my absence on the way in. Great. You did a good, a good job. Any criticisms? And anything that made you cringe Absol- or absolutely. want to smash up your mixing deck? All completely passable. Excellent. Just. I absolutely don't want to hear criticism anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Phil Hay from The Athletic. Enough about us, about The Athletic. You can sign up now to read Phil's writings. There's loads of stuff, obviously, about football, sport from around the world. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod is our URL. Pound a month for six months. Phil, this week on the site? Uh, we've had a good look at the defending of Marsh's side so far, particularly what's going on out wide, and regular listeners to the podcast will not be surprised to find what is in there. Uh, a look at set pieces as well, which have been quite a feature of the first couple of weeks. And if you want some rubbernecking, there's a great long read on what people think of Manchester United presently. Is the answer not a lot? <laughs> they think a lot, um, but not very much of it complimentary, put it that way. Still um, time for you to catch up with the, the bonus episode that we did that's on the podcast feed where Phil went and spoke to Andrea Radrazani as well at Thor Parch with David Ornstein. That's on the feed. You can see the video on YouTube as well. Uh, Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod if you want to sign up and read all Phil's stuff on The Athletic. Right then, you have come from Thor Parch ahead of the, the Chelsea game, the Chelsea presser. Quite a lot to go out from that. So where do you want to start then? Team news. Yes, So the big question marks are over Liam Cooper and Patrick Bamford, although I suspect reading between the lines there aren't actually question marks over either. Um, Marsh did say it would be a decision taken on Saturday about Bamford, but I think between both his comments and also what Bamford said on the official Legion United podcast, which was that he was kind of expecting to miss the Chelsea game, 
Uh, I think the likelihood is that we won't be seeing him and I don't think we'll be seeing Cooper either. How are you? How are you feeling? Yeah, all right, to be fair. I've got a, like, a slight groin injury, so I'll probably miss maybe the Chelsea game. Oh, okay. But I think it's just part and parcel of kind of coming back. Obviously, I barely played last year and barely trained actually. So I reckon the amount of times I trained from when I first got injured to the end of the season was probably less than 10, like mm-hmm. actually with the team. Wow. So just basically like a whole year out. So I think it's just getting used to it again. And until the, until Saturday when I just felt it a little bit, I was feeling all right. We're going to go in depth a bit more on Patrick Bamford actually in, in part two. So let's park that for the minute then. But in terms of um, team news then, get in there, aren't we? We're getting there. Yes. Um, no Philippo this weekend either. No Luke Ayling. But Marsh said that they are getting better and better and that he thinks they're probably a week away, two weeks away. Uh, I would have thought it'll be kind of early September. They might both be back involved. It See, feels like Junior Firpo is always two weeks away from playing for Legion United. I kind of thought that when he said that today as well. It has been um, a bit like that. And in the end, it's probably going to be the time frame they were talking about uh, back when he, he injured himself after the, the Blackpool game. They were thinking eight weeks initially. Then it seemed like it was going to be quicker and the progress had been better. But he's not so dissimilar to Bamford in a fitness sense. He, he played a lot more than Bamford last season, but he did have COVID and he did have injuries and it was very stop-start for him. And he's also missed an awful lot of the summer. And because of that, um, and because of the absence of a, a full run through pre-season, he's probably going to have the same thing as Bamford, where you know Bamford did have a full pre-season and did train a lot during it, but Furpo is going to be coming back into this right in the thick of a Premier League season, which, you know, gets going at a pretty fast pace in August, but does intensify as it goes on. So we're going to have to watch with interest, I think, to see how he adapts. But they are at least on the way back. And Mars seems happy with um, Sinistera's fitness. Um, Most other players, with the exception of Dallas, seem to be either over the hill in terms of recovery or, or very much getting there. So the squad isn't far off being full strength, but there are still key players, Cooper and Bamford, who don't look like being available this weekend. Just to run through some of the notes that I made on the uh, the press conference, uh, can you just shed some light on what it's like to be in the room when a question like this is asked, uh, where Marsh reflects on the substitutions against Southampton, which I know you spoke about on Monday. Um, I'm just interested to find out what it's like from a, from a press conference point of view, like where he says we stopped playing uh, on top of the, this is the 2-0 lead, the Leeds had uh, 38 build-ups before the 2-0 lead and then afterwards they only had two. It's about managing the game in the right way. There are lessons to learn. Nothing necessarily new there, but so why did that one come back up again? He he raised it, really. Uh, it was part of the discussion post-match down at Southampton, particularly because he'd said in the lead-up to the game, um, away at St Mary's, it's going to be very hot this weekend. We'll try and play in the same way. We'll, we'll press aggressively. We'll do all the things we normally do. And because of that, we're going to have to be sensible with substitutions. And we may well benefit as much as we ever have from the fact that you have the, the freedom to make five now, um, as opposed to three. And then in the end, made the enforced change of Dan James on for Patrick Bamford in, in the first half, but not a change he would have wanted to make. And then did nothing with the bench up until it had gone from, from 2-0 to 2-0. And I think you do find with Marsh that he does get drawn into making these admissions and he's not scared of, of admitting that he got it wrong. And, and there was that tone, I thought, in his post-match press conference where he did say, you know, maybe I could have thought about things a little bit earlier. And then I think today that had moved further towards, yeah, I should have done. You know, I should have changed things when we were 2-0 down. I should have used the bench more. There were ways in which we could have held on to that lead. We could have protected that lead. We could have made sure we came away with the the win that I think the performance over an hour should have had. So it's an admission that there were things in the performance that weren't good enough, that there were things ultimately that cost them. And yes, things to work on. Uh, and, And to be quite honest, I do prefer a manager who holds his hands up and admits when things have gone wrong. I always thought Bielsa was very good at that. Actually, 
almost probably to a fault actually to, uh, absolutely to a fault and, and occasionally uh, and you know more, actually more than occasionally to a degree where you found it hard to agree with you would sit and listen to him and say I don't think this is as much your fault as you're making out you know his mea culpas were always very very much self-aimed and, and placed on, on his shoulders but there's a, there's a little bit of that with Marsh I think uh, and that was what that came down to today you know I, I think that acceptance from him that he did get that wrong and it was the prevailing view, wasn't it, at the end of the game? I think all of us sat there thinking, I don't understand why it was that when the tide started to turn and Southampton finally came into the game, in, in part because Hassan Holt had absolutely loaded his team up with attacking players, why they weren't you know, proper tactical shifts that involved fresh legs from the bench. And, and clearly he thinks the same. Quite self-aware is Marsh, isn't he? I think so, yeah. And I think he, I think he seems to worry what people think about him to a degree. I think he, in the way that he sometimes will... We'll check back on himself like he'll mention he'll say football and soccer and things and he'll kind of he I think he's still I think he still wants people to like him. I think is what is the best way I could describe it at the moment. I think it tells you that there's quite an attention or quite a focus on what's being said or what's been written, what's on social media. You'll remember his comments about Bielsa's training methods, the overtraining quote that has kind of followed him around. There was a, a two week gap between one press conference and the next because the international break Oh, no, actually, sorry, not because of international break. I think it had been a postponed fixture, but it left Leeds with an empty fortnight. And it was in the middle of that that he did the talk sport interview and he said, you know, the players were overtrained. And he addressed that specifically when he sat down at his next press conference, if I recall correctly, before any questions had been asked, quite clearly because what had been said and the, and the criticism of those comments had, had come back to him. He'd picked up on them. He, he wanted to wanted to address them, wanted to, you know, I think fair to say, wanted to redress some of what he said or, or the tone of how it had been how it had been taken. So yeah, I don't think he's oblivious to what's going on and I don't often feel that it does a coach much good to pretend that you never get it wrong. I do feel like he's emerging from the shadow of Bielsa a bit this season though. It's, it's very much his team and it feels like not everything he does has to be necessarily compared to Bielsa anymore in, insofar as I mean that it is going to happen for a long time because of the success Bielsa had and how good it was but I don't feel like it is looming over him quite as much as it was. Yeah, he seems to be getting a tune out of Rodrigo for a start, doesn't he? Because he's uh, pretty taken with him and he was talking him up in this press conference. He's feeling incredibly confident, said Marsh. He'll be starting, he'll be wearing the captain's armband and he will be taking penalties. I'm really happy for him. And it's not random that he's uh, the captain either. It's a culmination of him adapting to the league to me what uh, we're trying to achieve. The confidence has grown in him massively. I think he feels like that about the goals as well, that it's not random that goals are coming for Rodrigo. It's probably less random a game when you play him at nine rather than at ten because it puts him in that zone where chances are going to come a bit more freely. But Marsh's attitude towards this is that Rodrigo is in a dug-in and what, which is not to say that he wasn't doing this before, but has dug-in and what for him um, since he, he became head coach. You remember I wrote about this shortly after Marsh took over that he added Rodrigo to the leadership group, the senior group of players that they have as a bit of a foreign voice, I think, because there was a feeling that there wasn't necessarily representation for your foreign players up there to make sure that it was kind of broad, I guess a broad spectrum and that was representative of the entire squad. He had Phillips in there, he had Bamford in there, he brought Rodrigo in as well, just a few additional um, additions to that. And I think it's quite significant that Rodrigo will be captain only because Bamford is injured and, and Liam Cooper as well. Cooper would clearly have the armband if if he was fit. But there always comes a question, doesn't there, when you're missing your, your usual sus- suspects and your, your usual candidates of who you turn to next. And I don't think mentally it can be a bad thing this for Rodrigo. I think he'll feel increasingly valued. They need to get a tune, if they're keeping him, they need to get a tune out of him this season. And even more so if there is this question mark over Bamford's fitness still, you know, if, there's, if there is this question mark about to what extent Bamford is going to be able to be Leeds United's nine or Leeds United's goal scorer. 
if in any way he is compromised this season, then Rodrigo is one of those who has been under pressure to step up for a while and, and certainly needs to do it now. He spoke about him as like a 9.5 recently, didn't he? Which I found quite interesting. And it does sort of point to that, not quite knowing where to put him, but maybe when you're playing two up front or one tucked in just behind the other, that maybe that's where his sweet spot might be. And and we've seen as well with, with the comments about a new striker, which we'll get onto the sort of transfery stuff in a bit. I still feel that to balance out our squad effectively, it would be helpful to have a new striker, but we need the right guy. Who is that guy who can meet the standards we need in the squad? From a tactical point of view, it does show that they consider Rodrigo somebody that they can play in both positions, I guess. Yeah, the, the 9.5 thing is quite funny because it does feel as if more and more pigeonholing players is becoming difficult to the point of being impossible. One of our analytical writers, John Muller, did a piece about a fortnight ago where he was analysing each position, but making the point that within a position, so midfielders, fullbacks, centre-backs, whatever, you have about six or seven different variations of, of what a midfielder can be, whether they're attacking midfielder, whether they're more defensive, whether they like to pull the strings with long passes, short passes, whether um, they're mostly about regaining possession as opposed to retaining it. And it is, it's a, it's a massively wide spectrum. And I'm still not totally certain where exactly Rodrigo sits on it. I think he has the ability to play as a nine, but I think 9.5 is probably about right because you do feel like being slightly more withdrawn than, say, somebody like Bamford would be, is probably a bit more suited to Rodrigo's game. Having said that, in this system, you do need somebody who will be sniffing for chances in the way that Bamford does. I've just had an awful flashback oh, to when on. Peter Ridsdale unveiled Olivier Decor on the pitch some years back. 20 years ago now, let's say, or more, when they held up a shirt with 7.2 on the back, when Peter Ridsdale used to brag about the fees that we were paying because we were, uh, we're suggesting that Rodrigo's a 9.5. Decor was a 7.2 at that stage. 7.2. It's so funny to think of, you know, the fact that 7.2 million now seems like such a fleeting amount of money, particularly this week, this week I think, with um, Morgan Gibbs-White going to Forest for, you know, the combined fee, admittedly, and, and you know, the total deal, but 40-odd million pounds. It's just gone, it's gone through the ceiling um, in every respect. But I, I just to quickly as well go back to something that the Mike was saying about Marsh. I think you'd right to to reflect on the fact that he does seem to have moved a little bit beyond Bielsa this season. I don't think there is now so much of the attention on what had gone before and the massive change of gears and the, the fractious attitude towards that, the friction that there was after he first came in. I think people now are judging him more and more on his own tactics, his own squad, his own team. The fact that the signings that have come in have been tailor-made really to fit into the system that he wants. It does give him the best possible chance to a point, I think um, him talking about new striker was interesting in the sense that he seems to be reflecting what a lot of us are thinking, which is that, yes, one would be, would, there would be definite benefit of having another one in the squad. But I think he would say himself, and he did, he did almost touch on this really to say, he's not actually far off from having what he thinks he needs. And when it comes to the new guys, Sinistera back in the mix for Chelsea, um, for sure is in the mix as well. Um, other things to think about, Touchline beef. Obviously, we saw Tuchel having a bit of beef at the weekend with Conte, two fiery characters. Could him and Marsh, it seems like Marsh enjoys the conflict a little bit, if he is even not allowed on the touchline, because Marsh wasn't sure, was he? Well, we're not sure at the moment either. Uh, I was just having a look before we came on air to see if there'd been any formal decision on that, and it's not clear at all. It surprised me slightly that Marsh talks so out a ton about that and saying, look, he was sent off last weekend, therefore he should not be on on the touchline, 100% expected him to just say, well, it's not down to me and it you know, makes no no real difference. But he clearly wants to see that enforced. And I did think <laughs> it was a good a good bit of niggle to get going early on. Um, I mean, Tuchel will probably still be 
you know, quietly fuming to a certain degree about everything that went on with Conte last weekend. Although I think I saw quotes from Conte earlier saying that he didn't think Tuchel should get a, a touchline ban. It's it all feels a little bit like something or nothing. And obviously, Marsh and Bruno Lage have had their they're coming together as well on the first weekend. But I said then, and you know, Marsh almost admitted this during the press conference. I think you'll see a bit of this with him. I don't think he'll be shy on the touchline at all. And he was joking about the fact that when he was in the States, as he put it, he got thrown out of games so often, he almost had to work on making sure that the team and the squad could look after themselves, irrespective of whether he was there and whatever he was doing, just in case he happened to not be on the touchline. And he, he was saying he, he won't be shy of, of yellow cards. But actually, if you if you read anything about his assistant, uh, Rennie Manich, who's coming ex-Dortmund ex and Munching Gladbach, he says a lot when he's asked about tactics and everything else. He kind of says like the important things with ta- the important thing with tactics is not that you have a preordained model, although most teams do. You know that isn't the essential part of it. It is the ability of players to apply ideas and practices and, and principles on the pitch and in real time under pressure and, and when things change in, in a slightly different way. So that's probably not something to worry about too much. But if you're asking me, do I think there might be more shenanigans on the touchline involved in March this season? The answer is yes. I mean, even the reports of the olive branch to Bruno Large, there's a bit of passive aggressive behaviour involved in this. In, in these so. kind of, it's sort of well, I've sent him an email. The subject is, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> I, lo- I loved it. I loved it being an email as well. You know, like, I sort of have it in my head that managers and coaches and scouts and everything else will be on WhatsApp permanently, but you might not get around to checking your email until. You know, 10 o'clock at night, at which point you think, I'm not, not replying to this. But he was asked, you know, have you had a reply? To which the answer was no. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he's a busy man. <laughs> Were you a bit surprised by how openly Marsh spoke about influencing referees from the sideline? Because he, he essentially said, sometimes you've got to have a go at referees to make them do what you want. No, he said that before. Uh, I think he said that towards the end of last season when he got yellow carded or was admonished on the side of the pitch. His take on it was that if he is trying to make a point about fouls that aren't going their way or decisions that are wrong or whatever else, or if he feels that the balance of the referee and he's out of kilter, without wanting to put words in his mouth, the only way in which to get around that is to start bollocking people and to start talking out of turn and getting your, yourself into trouble. So that's not fresh. It's just that it's it's unusual to hear a manager say that. <laughs> it's, it's something contrary to his predecessor. We can say that as well. And specifically on Chelsea then, they're going to be without Kante. Um, Kovacic is out. Roger's out injured as well. They tend to play wide, don't they? They play like wing backs. So do you think we'll see a, a shift in, in the system from Leeds this time? They do. Um, they've, they use three at the back. They've got players, Cucurella, James, uh, certainly looked to me from looking at the formation from last weekend that he was he, he was more in the, the um, line of three, three at the back than, than out wide himself. They had Loftus-Cheek in the team also. But Reese gives you a huge amount of overlapping on, on one side. Cucurella will, will do that on the other side. Um, Chelsea's second goal against Tottenham very much came from uh, them playing in a way and, and moving Spurs into a position where Reese was just completely unmarked coming in down the right um, on that side of the box. And given that the goals Leeds have conceded so far have come from weaknesses in those areas, that I think is where they need to be ultra careful on Sunday. Certainly the first goal at Southampton, very much due to pulling Christensen out of position, opening them up on the left. And because the entire defence had to shift, including Stroik, to, to cover that side of the pitch. There was nobody there to to deal with Aribo when he came in. Walker Peters on the overlap for the the second goal, and even going back to Wolves, you know that that goal from um, from Daniel Podence, 
it all came from kind of half space to half space, if I'm allowed to use that phrase, and from pretty much trying to to squeeze leads um, out on the flanks. So, I certainly from watching the goals back, it seemed apparent to me that that is a, a slight problem with this team, which kind of goes goes without saying that proper analysts will will spot that definitely. And I don't think it would be a surprise at all if you see teams trying to exploit leads there. Will leads go through at the back for this? Do you think? A good question because Marsh and actually nobody asked that today, but Marsh um, Marsh has shown signs of um, of shifting the team around certainly did last season but I think I suspect that given how it's gone in the first two games and given that he'll come out of those two games thinking that he should have taken six points from them I think he'll be reluctant to alter it too much in that way Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Patrick Bamford then. Leeds United's number nine, definitely first choice for the position, but but where is he at physically? I mean, we played the clip before of him speaking on the club's official podcast um, up near the start of the show there. And he says he's trained less than 10 times with the full squad after his injury last season. So it feels like he's a way off from being peak Bamford. Yeah, I, I don't think the uh, him saying that he was kind of expecting to miss the Chelsea game, I don't think much was a rev- oh, that was much of a revelation. When you saw him coming off at Southampton, your initial thought was that that's going to be at best a little while, as in you know, possibly a couple of weeks. I, I wasn't anticipating Marsh saying afterwards, oh, I think he'll be back in training next week and, and clearly he's not ready. What I think probably shines a, a bigger light on this is him saying that from the point of his first injury, and I think I've got that right, his first injury back in um, September away at Newcastle to the end of the season, he, he trained, he reckoned, fewer than 10 times with the, the full squad, which gives you... I think a very, very vivid impression of how little work he's been able to do and, and how little his body will have been able to keep up with the day-to-day stress that footballers are used to having um, in training. And therefore, you have the knock-on effect and, and no surprise to anybody that th- there is the impact of niggles and strains and everything that comes with the body trying to readjust to you know, full-on athlete's life. And it's it's a concern. I, I, I felt almost that what happened at Southampton crystallised the debate about a new striker, not because of numbers. The numbers in any case, I think, are light personally. I think they could do with a, another um, another nine, someone who, who can play as a centre forward. But because all of a sudden you did have to ask yourself, how much can Bamford contribute this season? And I don't think it's fair at all to look at him and say not very much. He could still have a, have a big year. But on the basis that we're two games in and already he has this groin issue and already he's missing games and he's going to have to have another period where he doesn't train fully and he and he gets himself back up to speed, it is a worry. Uh, and I think it's only prudent and only sensible to ask, is that something that you need to mitigate for and, and you need to cover? And I think that it is. 
Well, I've pulled the stats, uh, the post-promotion stats on Bamford. Had a look at them a little bit earlier on. First season back, 2020-2021, he played 3,062 minutes, which is the equivalent of a total of 34 games out of the 38, or averages out to over 80 minutes per game. So a huge contribution. You've only got Dallas, Aileen and Melier played more minutes in that first season back. He scored 17 goals, which was a goal every 180 minutes, a one-in-two striker for the minutes that he played, which is very, very good. Last season, 21-22, he played 559 minutes, which is the equivalent of just over six games. Uh, he played an average of 14.7 minutes per game across the season. So you can see what we've lost there, can't you? It's the lowest actual total minutes of any of the senior players that are in the squad. One little interesting side note on that is that Joe Gelhart only played 738, so not a great deal, and a great deal many more actually. And this season, 112 minutes so far. But Gilhart, of course, is at the age that he's at and Bamford is, is far more advanced in his career. The stats for 2021 tell you why it was that at the end of that season, he got his first England call-up. The stats for 21-22 tell you why it is that the idea of going to the World Cup is probably becoming a bit of a pipe dream for him. It's not a, a completely unrealistic dream on the basis that he has been involved with England. But I wrote about him after the Southampton game and I was saying that because of the way it's gone since his England debut, there is basically no data set on him at all. He just has not played enough games through through injury. And if we're being totally honest about last season, and this isn't a Bielsa or Marsh thing because it happened under both of them, he kept either being pushed or pushing himself to the point where he was breaking down. So there was the game at Newcastle where famously he stayed on the pitch because Bielsa needed him to, even though he had that ankle problem. And it was one of those where somebody's trying to get you through the game and, and they got a good point at, at St. James's Park. But then he came back for the Brentford game and pulled the, the hamstring. Then we had the, the kind of repetition of the foot injury where he reappeared under Marsh, played for 45 minutes against Norwich, started against Wolves, didn't make it to half time. It's very hard to pin it on him and to say that there's, you know, there is any reason for this other than the fact that his body has just not held up over the past 12 months. But it does leave him and leads in a position where, in terms of the World Cup, he desperately, I mean, there's 14 games, that's all between league games between now and, and the World Cup. So if he has any chance of getting in, he's got to play. But from Leeds' perspective as well, in order for them to gain proper momentum in the division, they need goals and they need results. And in no small way, they would be looking for those goals to come from him. I think the disappointment this season with him has been that he obviously had picked up the foot injury at the end of last year, which was a, an ongoing problem for him. But it, they said when that, was, when that happened that there was even a chance of him getting back for the end of the last season. So you thought, well, if that's going to be all healed up pretty much by the end of the season, then he's got a full summer to rest and presumably anything else can kind of get out of his system and he, and he can come back actually fully fit. And then to see him injured pretty much instantly, it does feel like we're, we're headed into the territory of you just need to, you can't rely on him anymore and you need, yeah. to, you need to replace him. That's the worrying worst case scenario, isn't it? He had quite a bad bout of COVID at the end of last season, which was why he missed the Brentford game. Otherwise, I think he would have been in the squad for that. Uh, although I always very much got the impression that had Leeds been safe before the, the end of the season there would have been absolutely no point in thinking about using him given what had, had gone on but you've seen it through the summer and you've seen it through pre-season the fact that he wasn't involved against Blackpool he wasn't injured but he wasn't involved because they were just being careful with him it wasn't cracking the whip for 90 minutes 90 minutes 90 minutes and I think there was a, that kind of sense of relief after the Cowley game that he got through 90 and he was looking good but even then Marsh was saying you know not 100% and not um, still not at, at perfect level getting close um, and, and starting to creep in that direction. And then I thought he had a decent game against Wolves, first day of the season, got through a good 84, 85 minutes, but then has this injury against Southampton. And you find yourself going back to 
September and that one-all draw against Newcastle to find the last time that he played from start to finish in a in a competitive game. And one of the things that jumped out from the piece that um, Stuart James did with him on The Athletic last week, it was a chat between Bamford and um, Michael Doherty, who was his old teammate in Nottingham Forest and is retired from professional football now. The piece was kind of looking at the way in which their lives have gone in different directions, but they're still very close friends and, and what it's like for the two of them. And towards the end, it got on to talking about the World Cup. Could Bamford go? Does he have any chance? And you can tell that we'd love to, and you can tell that he knows that it's probably now or never for him because he's had this this kind of brief in under Southgate. But he did say, in my head, I'm really thinking, where is the next goal coming from? And I can totally understand that because he hasn't had a goal in competitive circumstances at any point since the beginning of December, December the 5th, I think it was against Brentford. That is a long, long time. And that is kind of the mantra of goal scorers the, the world over, isn't it? Where's the next one coming from? Somebody else who's in the squad who's going to have an eye on the World Cup, Rodrigo. Is he the now the default number nine? Has he found himself in that position and can he actually retain it, do you think? Well, that's a bit of a trend right the way through the squad. There are a lot of players who will be thinking to themselves that if the form is particularly good over the next few months or if things fall into place, if circumstances open the door, they, they might get a look in. And I certainly think Rodrigo is one of them. I think if he was to score a decent number of goals before the World Cup, then there would probably would be quite a high chance of him knocking on the door and, and getting into the Spain squad. Llorente has been in and out of it a bit the last couple of years. Robin Koch with Germany and um, Matthias Klick with Poland. I actually think that alongside Bamford, there probably is as good a chance of Jack Harrison getting a look in with England in the build-up. He is somebody Southgate has looked at quite a lot. His stats have been very good at the start of this season. It's not to say he'll get a sniff. It's not to say he'll he'll get a chance. But I think in the circumstances, given that he is sort of on the, the fringes of the England radar or has been, and he is fully fit and he is playing, you know, he's, he's delivering the numbers that he's delivered in, in the first two games, he almost seems better placed. I think with Bamford, I, I feel sorry for him because it, it just seems that at the point where it really did open up for him internationally, the doors closed very, very quickly and, and almost entirely because of his fitness. What does your forward line look like on Sunday then? Do we go Rodrigo up top? Who's behind him? I think I'll put Rodrigo in. I can't yeah. see him I can't see him not starting. And whether or not maybe we see Aronson then play centrally and Dan James, James or Sinistera maybe getting a I think maybe a bit early for Sinistera, but I can see James coming in there maybe. That feels that feels right. Um I think that that's probably what will happen. It didn't go unnoticed at all at Southampton that although James was up front before half time there was a deliberate shift at the break to shift um, Rodrigo up into the nine position and to move Dan James out wide and to put Aronson centrally. I, I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago that I wondered whether longer term Aronson in that central role might be where he, he fits best. But I think a, a few reasons for not pulling Rodrigo out. One will be that he's got three goals and you know he, he looks full of it. Um, second is that Marsh needs a captain and that's clearly who he wants to give the armband to. Gilhart has had this dead leg, although he sounds like he'll absolutely be fit for the weekend but I think it it doesn't it doesn't seem like circumstances where Marsh would particularly make that that change and there certainly isn't going to be a new striker in before the weekend I mean we didn't go into that in, in great detail but I did think it was again a case today of Marsh saying look I, I would like one yeah I would like one it's as close as you're going to get to a to a challenge isn't it saying come on we need to get this done well again it's what we were saying earlier it's just kind of honest reaction to it rather than saying well you know we're probably alright if that's how you feel and and you and you, you think that there is scope for one there is room for one or there is call for one then 
you know, why why not say that without being ridiculously confrontational? Because you couldn't say that Leeds haven't supported him with signings this summer. They definitely and he, have. He said that, didn't yeah, he, as well? Ab- yeah, absolutely. So it's that nuance, isn't it, between he's not having a go, but he's making himself plain. You know, I I, I would like one. And he was asked about Wilfried Nonto at, at FC Zurich. Michael and I were talking about this on, on Monday and I was saying that having asked Leeds about it, they've been very kind of cool on it and kind of, kind of been given the impression that if it was going to happen, it might not happen in this window. But in any case, that that would not be something that was being looked at as the answer to do we need a striker for the first team squad. And when Marsh was asked about that today, he said, I don't think he's Premier League ready. And did actually say himself, I don't know if it'll be in this window. Um, Nonto is out of contract um, at the end of this season. All of the clubs who've been interested or looking at him seem to feel that the, the asking price Zurich would like or, or what they're, they're trying to chase is too high. For him, you know, that, that they don't want to spend too much on him. So nothing has really moved on that front. But in any case, that doesn't seem as if that is going to be the one, even, even if it was to arrive in this window, that doesn't seem like the one that is going to fill the gap, you know. It feels a bit uh, a bit like signing him and loan him out, does that? Because he's got the full Italy cap. So he's going to want to be playing. He's not going to necessarily be playing at Leeds. Devel- so. Development player, isn't yeah. it? You know, that that's that's how it sounded. Um, similar to guys like Sonny Perkins, who they signed, um, Jabby, Others um, who've who've gone out on loan, um, Lewis Bate, I mean, I know Creswell came through the academy. So the Jamie Shackleton, but it's the same thing that applies. Mm. You know, you're not wanting, and, and Shackleton is different because Shackleton is quite clearly coming to the end of, of his time at Leeds. I think we can all see that. But with Creswell, you've got him, you don't feel like he's yours for the here and now. You 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 want to rely on other centre-backs, so you send them out to play. And I think that would be the, the same with, with Nonto. But if it's a striker who... Marsh wants to use now and to use this season then it's going to have to be somebody else well on that is it time to start not succession planning maybe is not the right word for Bamford but have a credible alternative who isn't going to block the pathway for Gellhart we've heard that you know said by people at the club repeatedly over the course of the last few weeks they don't want to block his pathway but we've heard very clearly very definitively today he does want another attacker so where's that sweet spot then is it is it as hard as they're making it sound to someone who's about to make another 25, 24, something like that. It does feel like we're potentially putting too much on Bamford coming back as well because he's been at the club, this is his fourth year now, and essentially he's had one season that people have been happy with because in the championship, people wanted Tyler Roberts to play ahead of him at one stage and he missed a lot of chances. And I think coming into the Premier League, having signed Rodrigo, I think a lot of people, myself included, probably thought, well, this is maybe where Bamford moves to the bench for a little while and, you know, has to fight for his position back. But then he started the season brilliantly under Bielsa eventually worked his way into the England setup, and it just looked like he was a different player for a time, but maybe that was the, the exception rather than the rule. He was really good in the championship. I still maintain that I think Bielsa did the right thing by pinning his colours to that mast. He was he was absolutely integral to the way Leeds played and a really big contribution. And I get that there were the missed chances in it, but it wasn't as if it was a season without goals from him. Um, and, you know, he was he was a very, very key part of a team who, who in the end, won the title at a canter, you know, I say a canter, I mean, okay, it was all bunched up towards the end, but you know, there's a big gap um, between them and second place when it came round to it. And he was very, very good in his first season in the Premier League. And so, so Michael's right to a degree that, you know, you, you haven't got a massive sample size to go on with Bamford, but I think that he would have had a much better season last season had it not been for his body letting him down. But absolutely, you have to avoid putting too much pressure on him. And that was what I came away from Southampton thinking. If Bamford is a little short still, and if he is having to be managed, and Marsh had, had talked about you know reducing or limiting his training load through the week um, leading up to Southampton, then 
another body in the squad kind of takes the pressure off him because it's not all on Bamford to score goals or it isn't too heavily on Bamford to score goals, which isn't to say that he wouldn't want to do that and that he wouldn't have the, the ambition of finishing as the, the club's top scorer because naturally he would. But it does t- it does remove that kind of stress. Um, I think as well it, it gives Marsh a full complement of players so that if his tactics are going to work, they can work as well as they possibly can because he's got cover in, in all areas. It just seems like insurance... Um, insurance to me which can't be a bad a bad idea for Bamford's health in the longer term as well if there's not the pressure on him to maybe play when he's 80% fit and then get pick up another injury that's got to be a good thing because it feels like we're always at the point of thinking well if we can squeeze an hour out of him then he'll play a game when actually that's that's probably not ideal if you're carrying injuries it's competition as well isn't it I, I like the idea that Rodrigo is finally getting into the goal so suddenly there might actually be the question say for the sake of argument that Marsh wants to wait a little bit, uh, you know, wants to wait a little until a little later in the season to give Gilhart a proper go, you know, as a, a starting player um, up front. In the meantime, it's nice to think that it wouldn't be a foregone conclusion about do you go for Bamford or do you go for Rodrigo in that position. If Rodrigo's scoring goals, then it becomes much more difficult to bump him out. But again, three goals from Rodrigo in the first two games, it's an encouraging return. And it, it's nice to think that, yes, he might click, but we've had two fairly mediocre seasons from him and it's just the risk factor, isn't it? It's the risk factor of will Rodrigo ultimately have a, a mediocre season again or is he going to explode? If he explodes in a positive way, then perhaps you don't miss another forward so much. But if there are issues with Bamford's mm. fitness and if you know, Rodrigo goes off the boil at any stage, then do you do you have the cover in the competition that you need? I think from a fan's perspective that there are fears around the club's approach because of how it approached last season. So, you know, you've also got fears attached to what Angus Kinnear said when I spoke to him on the Square Ball podcast that the club can't afford to have expensive transfers go wrong and not work. So you you, you fear maybe they're a little bit risk averse. There's also fears around the, the kind of the, the hipster money ball approach, if you like, you know, towards signing players. And sometimes people will say, just go out and get somebody who you know is going to work, who's going to be competent at Premier League level. Uh, level sorry. And then you also look at the squad and you see there's like Rasmus Christensen there, who's a credible alternative to Luke Ayling. Adams and Rocker, credible alternative to, to four shots. They're starting to just to, you know, to build the squad now. And then you see that the money was apparently there for De Ketelaer. And then we also see the injury records of Bamford and Gelhart as well. And people piece all these things together and say, well, just go spend that money on a credible alternative to Patrick Bamford and give yourself the best chance of staying up. Or don't even go and spend all that money. It doesn't have to be a thirty-five million pound striker just because off forward, just because that's what the Kettler cost or was going to cost, you know, and what what Leeds had agreed with Bruges. And yeah, I, I think it is it is all about covering your bases, isn't it? And a little bit like the central midfielder last season, we could again we we kind of go around in circles with this. We could touch on left back as, as well. But to, to look at specifically at centre-forward, it, it does feel as if the... What Marsh called last weekend the last decision, last decision to make. And, and he, I thought, made very plain today that they're not going to do a left-back. I thought he, he 100% made it clear that he's happy with football. He thinks strike's getting better there. He likes what he sees from Hilda in the 21s. He, he thinks they can cope and they can manage um, in that position. But he was saying last weekend, you know, last decision was the striker. Saying today... It would be better if we had one, but it's got to be somebody who fits. As he put it, who is that guy? But that's not a question for us, really, is it? It's a question for the recruitment department. But he did also mention about dominoes falling as well, which suggests to me they've got their eye on maybe one or two players, but other things need to move in the market. Like last year with 
you know, Cristiano Ronaldo arriving over at Old Trafford freed up Dan James. Absolutely, which will definitely happen. I mean, I don't think I'm sticking my neck out too much to say that Old Trafford is probably one of the places where you're going to see a lot of movement towards the end of the window or they would like probably like to see a lot of movement. And that will have knock-on effect elsewhere. That will mean that transfers start happening elsewhere and, and players become available. So he's never broken from the line of them being active. Marsh, he's always said that, you know, that they're still looking, they're still doing this, that and the other. He did say today, I, I think there will be movement. And I just get the sense that deep down, he knows that it would be a good idea to, to do it if they can. If they can find the right player, to use his phrase, then, you know, why not? Do you think we've got enough at left back? No. Um, Is the right answer. I'm not. I think if Hilda as a centre-back predominantly, which isn't to say that he can't play at left-back, but in no way have I seen enough of him at first-team level in that area to know for sure that, that he'd be good enough there. I'm not saying that he wouldn't be, but I you know, I, I, I couldn't say that categorically. Um, about Kai Wagner, there's, there's talk there. Well, I think Leeds are one of the clubs who like the look of him, but I was speaking to American guys earlier this week and they are saying there'd be no bids for him. Um, I think Philadelphia Union, where he plays are increasingly of the view that somebody is going to come in and sign him or, or might well. But certainly as of yesterday, when I was speaking to one of our American writers, Sam, he was saying, no, there have been, been no offers. And I mean, I, I don't know if we've got the, the Marsh quote to hand exactly what he said, but he, he was essentially saying, yeah, so here, I think Pascal's doing great. Junior is looking strong in rehab training. Um, Leo Helder's played well in the, the under-21s. There didn't seem to be any vibes in that of, yeah, we, we need a, a left back and we're going to go out and get one. I think there was a definite distinction between that and what was being said about uh, about a striker. It's funny, you know, talking about the striker and the idea of insuring yourself against failure. It was Nick Harris, who is Sporting Intelligence at Sporting Intel on Twitter, who's worked out, and it's actually uncanny how this works. There's a correlation between the number of goals you score and the number of points you get in a season. Nearly... Every season, it roughly works out. There are some outliers, of course, like, you know, you get Wolves who finished quite high last season, despite not scoring many goals. But generally, it follows that for every goal you score, you'll get a point. And I've had a look at it here. When we finished ninth in the first season back, we scored 62 goals. We got 59 points. Last season, we scored 42. We got 38. So you can tell it's roughly within the same sort of ballpark. And this season, obviously, we've scored four. Very small sample size. Scored four, got four points. So it does It does actually, by and large, track when it comes to the, the league table. So... Okay. Even if you get, I was so, just going to I mean, say, I, I should, I, I should actually, in that case, on on that basis, I should just finish the point I was going to make, um, and it was my fault for for getting sidetracked. But strike, I've said a few times, I actually think he tries to do the right things at left back. I genuinely do. I think he's really professional in the way that he, he tries to apply it all. I'm just not convinced that that is his position. And Furpo is Furpo. We all feel the same about Furpo. We're, <laughs> we're all a bit unconvinced, yeah, yeah. Um, because of the the evidence that we've got over one season behind him. So we'll see this year. So. I think there is an argument that they need a left back. However, if you were giving me the money to spend and telling me that I could only get one player, I would go for a forward. Yeah, because the goals are going to equate to points. And the point I was just going to finish on there to round it off was that if you add seven goals to this side, look at how bunched up it was from around ninth to 17th last season in the table. And if it does track and seven goals is seven points in a very simplistic way, you're talking about multiple league positions and you're talking about Three million quid per league place now, so it's worth doing, isn't it? Well, that was the incredibly frustrating thing about last season was I never felt at any stage that Leeds needed to be vastly better to be in less trouble than than they were in. It didn't feel as if it needed too much to take a bit of a step away, so that you know, far from catching masses of the teams above you, 
you were at least able to leave a few behind you to get on with the the mess of a relegation battle as opposed to looking yourself like you were going to go down on the last day. And that was kind of my hope for this season was that the improvement didn't need to be astronomical in in order for Leeds to be a mid-table side who were who were more comfortable and I think the best thing you can say about the two games so far is that Leeds should probably have won both and should probably have taken six points from both and that is a definite sea change from most of last season but certainly Marsh's 12 games in charge where it was quite often difficult to make the case that Leeds had been the better side on the day um, I don't think with any I know how the last half hour went down the last 20 minutes went down in, in Southampton but Leeds looked good for an hour um, and I think they had enough of the game against Wolves to deserve that win too If you're into your tactics and football analytics and you're looking for a deeper understanding of the game, you can join me, Ali Maxwell, along with Michael Cox and the rest of the Athletics data team for our Football Tactics podcast. Find new episodes every week on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Funny, I was listening to you two talking on the Monday show, Michael asking you, Phil, about whether you were looking forward to the end of the transfer window. <laughs> I've sort of now got a handle on why you hate it so much because we, we do, it's like ground, Groundhog Day, isn't it? We go round and round on the same points over and over again. It's But it, do keep listening. It's been a long one, this, because they were in for the Anderson signing, you know, in no time after the end of the season. We ran that story on the Sunday about two hours after the end of the Brentford game and it has just kept going and going and going from, from there and there have been loads and loads of players linked and they and they have done a, you know, a decent number of transfers including some under-21s, but it's been, a, yeah, it's been a busy old window. What's your take on the net spend thing? Because one of the big things that fans get annoyed about, if you are to follow things on Twitter, is, well, we've not spent a penny this summer. We've taken the money from Rafinha and Phillips, and we've spent that, but they're not spending anything else. Spend more. Net spend doesn't matter if your squad is adequate. Um, net spend is relevant if your squad is inadequate. I see an awful lot of messages aimed at our Liverpool writers about net spend over at Liverpool. It seems to be a very, very big topic of conversation over there. And there seems to be quite a lot of criticism of Liverpool's board and their transfer policy from time to time, which strikes me as pretty odd when you consider what they were in for last year and how close they were to doing all four trophies and the sort of players that they've they've signed. I think you need to be careful that you don't get stuck in the mindset of equating expenditure with guaranteed results. But there are circumstances in which clubs don't spend enough. Absolutely. The proof of the pudding with this will be the season, won't it? If, if Leeds have another really difficult season and struggle again and, and either go down or, or run close to relegation, then you will say the squad wasn't right. The recruitment wasn't right. 
if they're far more stable and they're far more comfortable, which hopefully they, they will be, then you would look back at it and say, actually, in the large part, they, they did the right things in the positions where they, they needed to sign players. But as part of that discussion with Radrizani, he was talking about you know the money that had been spent on players in the previous two seasons and the, the fact that they hadn't used player sales in order to to bring people in. And I think in fairness to them, if you were talking net spend over the Premier League windows, they'd be um, it'd be a positive spend, wouldn't it? As opposed to, to a negative um, spend. But we did say, or I did say to him, the question that leads to is, has the recruitment been good enough? You know, has it worked? The, the players that you signed post-promotion, have enough of them thrived and contributed big performances, you know, regularly to say that, yeah, recruitment's worked? And, and he, as good as said, well, no, not really, but I would rather that we judged over a period of three to five years how far the club have progressed so that you can say, irrespective of, you know, individual signings, has the whole project and has the whole plan taken them to a better place five years down the line than, than where they were were when they um when they got promoted? And time will tell. But in terms in terms of net spend, I'm not saying that people shouldn't discuss it. It's just that it it's not necessarily a problem in every circumstance, if that makes sense. Are we just far too entitled as football fans? Is that the problem? I, mean, I was going to say because no. you, you were saying that about um about this idea of people wanting like you know new money, and that made me think of the the Man United supporters trust comments this last week. Have you seen those where they yeah. they've essentially is demanded uh, too strong a word? Let's say demanded. Uh, they've demanded that new money be put in for players and infrastructure. And I thought, well, who actually pumps in a load of new money for rebuilding a stadium? And nobody does. Look at Spurs. Spurs have built the best football stadium on the planet, but it also incurred a billion pounds worth of debt. But they're paying it through stuff that they have generated by being in the Premier League. And the idea, as we know from the plans that leads, is to, is to grow your revenues, and then you can start increasing your wage bill, you know, retain the better players and hopefully move away from the so-called Leicester model. But Spurs did it with a billion pounds worth of debt, but they don't seem to be struggling too much. I mean, so, so why why do football fans think that they deserve new money? This is not really our battlefield, but... Funny though, isn't the it? One, oh, <laughs> the one... Well, Michael was trying hard not to giggle about it on, on Monday. The one observation I would make about Manchester United is that there's a huge amount of money going out of that club and there is a huge amount of money from, what, from how it appears being made by the Glazers at a time when their competitive level seems to be shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So I understand the, the frustration with that. I think it becomes entitlement if you are of the view that you should be able to sign whoever you want. So basically, if Mbappe suddenly becomes the best player in the world, or Haaland, if you feel like your club should should get them, um, or you should be winning everything every season, or going close to winning everything every season, that feels like bordering on the point of forgetting that football can Football can be a little bit random that football doesn't deliver everything that you want and you have to take a kick in the teeth every now and again. You asked, are football fans too entitled? Football fans pay a lot of money to follow football. They do pay a lot of money to travel, pay a lot of money to go to games. So are 100% allowed to judge and take a view on what they see. I think all of us try hard to be as reasonable as we can. But, you know, I find it with hearts. You become far more, I don't know if irrational is the word, that's probably not fair, but you... You become a bit, I find myself becoming a bit more hot-headed and a bit less reasonable when I think about things that go wrong at hearts, you know, because it is the, the supporter in me and perhaps I'm, perhaps I think too much, you know, as, as a journalist when it comes to Leeds and, and kind of look at it through journalist's eyes. But no, pe- people, people are entitled to have expectations. And don't forget as well that clubs quite often promote themselves as being ambitious and progressive and Leeds, Leeds talk about wanting 60,000 seat a stadium talk about wanting to develop into a club who are going to compete in Europe you know going to, going to develop on, on all fronts 
So therefore, people are going to look for it, aren't they? And people are going to, going to want to see it. But you have to say that there's, there are realistic timeframes in which that can happen. And this is only a club who were, were promoted two years ago. Let me ask you another question. How would you feel if Leeds had come up and had spent or had committed 44 million quid, 45 million quid to Morgan Gibbs White? Mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I would have been pleased that we're spending money because it's just that it's the childish monopoly thing, isn't it? It's like going around the board, snapping up all the properties just because you can. I'm, um, not, I'm not saying that's a bad signing or I don't like him as yeah. a player because I do think he's a really talented player. But I think it it's, does, it's a lot of money to I think commit. It does pose a question yeah. about football when a club who have been promoted after such a long time outside the, the division are able to spend that and happy and comfortable to spend that. It's a, it's a huge amount of cash. And football is just a mad world. It's absolutely yeah. mad world. To look out for it because they've signed every player this summer, it feels like they've, they've signed in a player every day, more or less. What is going to happen to them if they do go down? Like how does they how do they make all of this fit with EFL financial rules? Or even Phil, year three in the Premier League, if they if they make it that far, you know, like because that's when you you're rolling three year FFP kicks in, doesn't it? Well, they're going to have massive expenditure to deal with, aren't they? And somebody's going to have to pick up the bill, and players would have to be sold. But it, I suppose, to be fair to Forrest, talking about that two games into the season is sensible in in as much as you're taking a long term view of it and you are thinking, you know, how protected is the club, but. It goes back to the whole thing about proof being in the pudding. If Forest have a really strong season and the team develops, people will look back at the summer and say, "Yeah, because they invested. You know, they spent money and they they pushed the they pushed the boat out. They developed the team. They improved the squad. Therefore, they had a good season. If they have a bad season, terrible season, go down. Or a bad season, just about get relegated. People will say." They were doing what they shouldn't have been doing yeah. when, when they came up. We, 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 that, we kind of reverse engineer our opinions based on what actually ends up happening, don't we? Because we're always sort of operating looking backwards, if you like. Uh, so the, the question I ask about Gibbs White, and you can't answer this, obviously, but do you have the money to do a deal like that? Do you have the money? If you do, then absolutely fine and all well and good if it's part of a part of a strategy. If you're spending that without much plan of how you're going to absorb the cost and everything else, then you are kind of setting yourself up for trouble further down the line. But it has to be said that if you end up in the Premier League and a club like Forrest are devoting that amount of cash to a transfer like that, what do you do But apart from try and get involved at the same sort of level? It's really, really difficult, isn't it? That's why I sort of thought if Rocker and Christensen could end up being very good signings for £10 million, perhaps Leeds have landed on a couple of really good bargains there at a time when clubs seem less and less bothered about bargains but the, the word bargain just doesn't seem to come into it anymore really you, you pay what you have to pay and I know that's kind of how it goes um, although Leeds do seem to run a little bit counter to that and I think on the one hand people do like that we're not just going completely gung-ho but there is as I say that entitled maybe the childish part of you wants to go full football manager and blow the budget on everyone if I owned a club I'd want to do that except then I'd remember that it was <laughs> some of it might well be be my money and it might be me picking up the bill. I think as well, partly of part of the thing of getting promoted to the Premier League was that there's 120 million quid to spend every year, isn't there? That's just part. Of, that seems to be part of the deal that you get. And in reality, I guess when you come up, everything inflates around it. So all the way people who were paid 20 grand in the Championship has only paid 40 grand, and that it all starts eating away. At it. And this summer, I get the feeling the wage bill has probably grown as we've as we've grown the squad. Even though a couple of big earners in Phillips and Rafinha have gone, the wages they were on were probably in truth not reflective of their ability, nor their new contracts. No, yeah, I was going to say, you're right there on the wage bill. I think a lot of people do always say, well, we get 150 million quid a year. I was thinking about in, this earlier yeah, in the, in in the, the week, Premier and League. I wish I'd dug out the, the figures, but the wage bill it is the wage bill, isn't going it? over 100 million. Yeah. So straight away you can go, and that's not just for the players. You know, you've got a club that needs staff and infrastructure and everything else. 
Two thirds of your Premier League money goes on yeah, wages. Shoots, doesn't it? Shoots Immediately. Out, shoots out the door. And how do you avoid that on the basis that if you want expensive players, you have to pay them expensive wages and there's a going rate and players, you know, some players will be reasonable about taking slightly less. One club, if that's where they particularly want to go, some players will just expect that for the value you're paying or the value you're putting them at, you pay X amount. I mean, I always remember somebody saying to me that when Leeds used to talk about Robert Snodgrass being worth £10 million, £12 million, Snodgrass's attitude was, well, why don't you pay me the wage of a £12 million player then, if that's what you think I'm worth? You know, pay me the pay me the going rate. And same somebody like Cucurella, for example, coming from Brighton to City, if you're signing him for the same money as Haaland, I'm not saying he'll be on... Well, he's at Chelsea now. Yeah, sorry, Chelsea, yeah. If you're signing <laughs> him for the same money as um, as Haaland, say, for example, because the, the fees were, were pretty... In fact, I think Cucurella in the end went for more and, okay, it was because of the buyout for Haaland. But there's a kind of rough ballpark going right, isn't there, of, of what you have to pay. So your wage bill does go, go through the roof. But as I say, n- none of this changes the fact that you should still put pressure on a club to be as good as they can be to, to push themselves as, as far as they can. And it can't be a one-sided thing where a club talk about expanding the stadium, going to Europe and, and everything else, but supporters are not then entitled to to push them to to make that step. As I say, when they got promoted, Radrazani always kind of talked about that as a five-year process of, of making Europe. I think that seems like a pretty reasonable timescale to do it in. I think to be looking for it to happen, irrespective of the league position in season one, I think looking for it to happen in the space of two years or even three is is asking quite a lot. With that in mind, then when are we going to give Jack Harrison a new contract, Phil? Pay him what he's worth. I was expecting that to get going after the window closes. I don't see him leaving. Radrazani said absolutely not. When we spoke to him and asked him about Newcastle, he said no way, that will not happen. If Harrison is serving up the number of assists and chances and crosses and, and it's quite clear as well that he's going to be really influential part of the, the set piece approach if he's a fundamental player in this squad if he's if he's crucial um, his contract can't be allowed to run down much further so no you you would expect that's that's going to happen otherwise it will start to look more and more like he's he's on his way somewhere further down the line and just wrapping up the other stuff then um, in terms of outgoings of the squad players uh, we've seen Stuart McKinstry go back north of the border to Motherwell on loan back where it all started no permanent option in that one no permanent option. I don't think Motherwell will be paying a huge amount of money for that either. It's a case of, of getting him a game and, and letting him play. I was saying in the notes, we've, we've, there has been, it was it was kind of promised this in Telegraph, but there has been a definite, definite shift in the attitude towards loan offers. Um, he's one of several players who've gone out, uh, Roberts, Shackleton, Creswell, Lewis Bay as well. There has been definite movement from, it's better to have them under the umbrella of the first team, which is what Bielsa wanted to, it's better for them to get games elsewhere. Um, I think the one to look for now will be Paveda and see what happens with him. Yeah, Marsh mentioned him today, didn't he, in the press. Uh, we will provide a solution for Jan Paveda, who has been a pleasure to work with after his injury, but um, at least a long move for him, it looks like. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. He doesn't look like he's going to get a look in, Not in the first team. Matteo Joseph, though. He is going to be inching closer to the first team, according to Marsh. They like him and were very, very happy with that signing when they made it. I know back in January... It wasn't as if there were parties in the street when um, when he arrived from Espanol, I think it was. It was, it was players of a slightly different calibre and their age and experience that everybody was looking for in the market. But they were really pleased with, with that one. Um, and he does seem like he's, like an awful lot of the players in the 23s, he seems like he's got plenty of talent. Good things being said about Sonny Perkins as well. Um, Kuhn Tumendiskov, off. Yes. Fourth, um, fourth tier of Spanish football there. Yeah, he again has not been getting a look in for a long time. 
that's very kind of reminiscent or harks back to the initial approach to the academy after Radrazani's takeover where Orta's strategy was to bring in a lot of players from abroad and players who he obviously rated and, and thought might have a chance here, but a lot of whom haven't really thrived. That's not to say that's true of all of them. I mean, Stroik came in in, in that in that flood of players too, but it's definitely changed. The, the strategy has, has definitely moved towards a far more um, recruitment, UK-based recruitment um, at academy level and also a bit more expenditure on individual players. I think they've tried to they've tried to push the envelope on that front. And the nature of under-21s recruitment is that you get two or three from each batch, don't you, that are half decent. And if it works, even if they're not breaking through into your first team, the the financial gains from this as well, potentially. I mean, I'd have a look at what City have managed to do with the players who've left the Etihad this summer. Who? How much have they brought in? Is it like 120 million or something? The, well, we were when we were sat down at Southampton, we were talking about um, Bazunu and Lavia, um, who were in the Southampton team, and Jabby, um, who'd obviously come over from City to Leeds, and saying that between them, you were talking about income of around about £40 million. And it might not be fair to say that they had no chance of playing for City ever, but it felt like they had a long road to go down if they were going to break into that, you know, break into Guardiola's squad in a way that made them first team regulars. And the cash that's been pulled in from that has, give or take, paid for Haaland's transfer fee. Okay, there's a bit, bit of a difference between it. But um, that's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. And actually, I'm always fascinated to see the number of clubs who who don't just spend and spend and spend. You know, it interests me that City didn't bother with Cucurella in the end because they clearly thought it was too much money and they, they didn't want to do it. So either, They don't need a left back, Phil, so just like Leeds. That must be it. That must be it. Yeah, they've got a centre-back who can play there too. But they pulled out of that and gave up on it because it was a case of this is not the right thing to do and as I say even City you look at and you think well they they have actually used outgoing transfers to um, you know to fund fund a bit of what they've done well, I've got, I've got in the here. market I've got them here they've brought in according to Wikipedia I mean so, you know, take it with a pinch of salt but over 164 million quid they've brought in this summer 12 million for uh, Bazuna he's gone to Southampton there's players in here I've never heard of though like Pedro Porro who's gone to Sporting um, 7.2 million there You've got 4.3 on Ko Itakura, who's a Japanese player who's gone to Mönchengladbach. Never heard of that player. Obviously, they sold Gabriel Jesus to um, Arsenal, 45. We paid five for Jarby. Lavia to Southampton, over 10. Sterling, Sterling. Sterling as well. I mean, yeah. him, and, him and Jesus, you can <laughs> kind of strike out with that list. But, Z- Zinchenko. Um, but I mean, even still, they just nicely supplement it with 10, 20, 30 yeah, million pounds every summer, don't absolutely. they? It's almost like having a massive financial advantage gives you a massive advantage. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm not joking when I say that Leeds have an eye on their academy constantly. There are so many good players in it that uh, you've got scouts from everywhere who are just keeping an eye on it. If in the case of Leeds, as they did when Phillips left or Southampton with Lavia, Bazuno, you know, if the opportunity comes up, there's no shortage of takers for them because there's, the academy ranks there are so good. Well, there you go. Then that's the Friday show all wrapped up for uh, for this week. The Phil Hay Show. At the Phil Hay Show on Twitter to say hello and pound a month for six months at theathletic.com forward slash uh, Leeds pod. Let's reconvene after Chelsea then, shall we? And uh, we'll debrief that and see how we got on. What, what are you fancying for that then? Home win? Are we doing predictions this season? I why, can't remember. Why did you, you laugh? Why <laughs> did you Michael just snorted with laughter. Uh, I don't see a home win. It's a bigger test, this one, isn't it? Um, and I must be honest, I think I fancy Chelsea. I'll take a point. Yeah. Take a point. We'll return on Monday. Speak to you then. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.